0: in our society, and this is an unlearning thing, we don't teach people how to have a healthy conflict. And so people are afraid of it. They avoid it. They don't learn how to do it. Conflict seeking and conflict avoiding are not the same thing. You can be someone who doesn't avoid conflict, who also doesn't seek it. Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Nicole Bradford, a pioneer, innovator, investor, and thought leader at the intersection of human and technology transformation. Now, Nicole Invest is a co-founder and partner at Nürnberg Collective, a C-Fund venture fund. She's also built a huge community around transformative tech and leadership with over 9,000 members in 72 countries. She's a senior and entertainment executive who's worked at amazing companies and huge brands from Epic Games to Activision, Bazaar, Disney and Vendi. She actually led the operations for the World of Warcraft in China and all of Blizzard's entertainment across China. This is like companies that are leading to like an $18 billion deal in industry and a defining event. And many of the games that she built for Epic Games broke world records. She's also a lecturer at Stanford University and a shared faculty of mine at Singularity University. One of the reasons I wanted to get her on this show, though, is she's one of the most unique people with perspectives on human performance and human potential and using technology to unlock some of the insights that help us to improve well beyond what we believe possible. She doesn't believe in the dialogue of human versus machine, but more human and machine. But before we dive into some of these things that she's learning and many of the conventions she thinks we should unlearn, let's figure out how it got started for her.
0: My life has only just made sense. Part of it is that I've been working on a book and in really doing a lot of the deep thinking around the book, I have an outstanding editor That I'm working with, who has worked on 10 New York Times bestsellers. He's really demanding as an editor, but just the whole process doing deep, deep, deep work. What I've realized as I've looked back over my life and the choices that I've made is that I've always been interested in the exact same thing. That thing has always been, how do we become? How does one become? And it's really the act of transformation. So For me, whether it's games or wellness or well-being or mental health, social health, emotional health, it really is all about how does one expand one's individual capacity? And then how does that really tie into the collective? And then how does that tie into where humanity is going? And of course, it started out with me doing it for myself, pulling myself out of Basically, nowhere, (laughs) nowhere in Texas to where I am now. But how does one become? And what are the things that are out there, whether they're digital or non digital, to support one doing that? So now it finally makes sense. I call it the song of my heart.
1: I love that. So, what was one of the first bursts of that? What was sort of that song of your heart then? Like, what was one of those first moments where you sort of said to yourself, this is something that's important to me. I need to learn more about myself and there's ways that I can do that. Were you sitting in Walt Disney designing something? Were you in China in the middle of building World of Warcraft games? Like, what was that sort of moment, if you can think, that sort of struck you to go, this is what I need to focus on?
0: I think I was 13 years old and I was at Lisa Dawson's first party. <laughs> and. Everybody was there in school because her older brothers were good-looking and popular. And Lisa and I, we were little advanced placement honors program geeks. And all the popular kids came to her party because the popular girls wanted to see her brothers who were upperclassmen. And they thought that they might be there. And then the popular boys came because the popular girls came. And so you had these two total nerds, complete nerds at a party that was mostly going to be other nerds that ended up being like the party of the month. (laughs) And I remember standing there. I can remember what I was wearing. And also, you know, I'm African-American and I grew up in a white neighborhood. And also in high school is when people from all sorts of backgrounds came together. So I was trying to understand where I fit in. And I remember standing in the corner of this party at my friend's house who I was at. I was at her house all the time. And feeling so uncomfortable, thinking, this is not how it's going to be. It's not going to be like this for me. And I was painfully shy, which is really funny. You've met me now. I don't seem yeah, shy. Yeah,
1: you're as diverse as you could. They go. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm still a secret shy person, but I've just like overcome it. But I was painfully shy. I wouldn't talk to a stranger shy. I just like stood in the corner of this room feeling so uncomfortable and was like, no, this is not going to be how it is. Then I just sort of started forcing myself to talk to people after that. Then I started organizing the things I was passionate about. So I started like the second Amnesty International chapter in the state of Texas in high school. And I got into Model UN and I just sort of started following things that I was really passionate about. By time I looked up my senior year, I was popular. And I never tracked it, but it was. I do remember saying, this is not going to be my life. Not like this. And I, making a conscious decision. I know. Were you popular in high school? Were you a nerd or were you popular?
1: I sort of spent half of my time smoking cigarettes out by the bike shed. And then half of my time <laughs> sort of floating around, probably trying to go to those parties to meet those fantastic other people that you get a chance to meet in your early days of your life the thing that sort of really strikes me though and I here this a lot is first of all like this acceptance that you don't want things to be this way you obviously have a belief about where you want your life to feel how you want to feel how you want to be in it which is super to hear one part of it is defining that but then actually taking action and doing things that might be uncomfortable that you might know the answers to like setting up an amnesty chapter all of these things to create opportunities for you to grow as an individual. I often say to people, some of the most seminal experiences for me were not necessarily related to my career. It's when I took personal choices to get outside my comfort zone. Classic example was when I finished university, I used to always work a couple of years and save up money and then just go travel for six months. And one of the best trips I ever did was when I was 22, and I went to South America for six months. I couldn't speak any Portuguese. I couldn't speak any Spanish. I went on my own. And even at that time, South America was a little bit of like a mystical place. I'm from Ireland, right? Tiny little country. Like nobody had been there. Even when I was in university, me and my best buddy, we went backpacking around Thailand. And this is even before Leonardo DiCaprio was making films about it. I had to show my parents on a map where Thailand was. Why would I want to go there? So I've always enjoyed the pursuit of the unknown to that point of it's always helped guide me to learn about myself, to grow as an individual. It's always uncomfortable. But I tell you what, like every time I sort of choose the path less trodden in a way or the sort of gifts that I get along the way about learning about myself, learning about even the intellectual pursuit, if you will, that I'm exploring. It's a huge gift in terms of personal growth and development. And you're someone who just struck me as, I've only started to get to really know you. You're sort of forward with that.
0: A big part of what I'm thinking about these days, what my focus is in, I use the word wellness and well-being just because it helps people figure out what stadium I'm in. But really what I'm interested in is human potential, a realized and then, how do we use technology to amplify that? How do we use technology to enable and empower that? So, I do that by investing in wellness and well being companies, but also in working with researchers and really the types of things that I track. Right now, I'm, my book is really about being human in the age of AI. And some of the things that I find that I bristle at the idea that humans are over here's a good thing to unlearn. We have these things that we believe are true that don't really serve us. A good example might be we have outdated metaphors. Henry Ford introduced "mana's machine as a way to describe the factory and the role of the person in the factory. Many people, by the way, I just learned this the other day. Did you know that Henry Ford invented The weekend?
1: I did not know that fact, but there's some very interesting, let's say, side effects of the whole Ford thing. Annual planning is another thing that was inspired by McKinsey working with the Ford Motor Company because they wanted to plan I didn't... do annual budgeting too as well. There's so yeah. many of these, let's call them like as you are describing, metaphors that we're still living with designed in the beginning of, let's say, industrialization or productionization of technology Probably. that are so outdated, in my opinion, right? Annual budgeting. Sure, it's a healthy exercise to plan annually, but like being able to sort of anticipate how much something is going to cost 12 months in advance and spend four months trying to come up with that number when innovation happens so quickly. Helpful metaphor, but not so helpful now. Yeah. There could be better ones. So yeah, no, tell me more about the weekend though.
0: It's amazing. I did not know this. So basically he thought that there were two problems. One was they were so efficient they could make, cars so fast that it was easy for them to make cars for everyone who wanted one who could afford one. And so where would they get new customers? There's an interview where he was like, well, I think our employees should be our customers. It used to be people worked six days and they only had Sunday off. So he said, well, if you only have Sunday off, if you work 60 hours in the week, you're too tired to go anywhere. And so you don't need a car. But if you have two days off, you might need a car. You might want to go somewhere. And then he also did something that I don't think anyone really knows. He doubled wages. And so there was a period of time where he was with a bodyguard at all times because there were other people who were making cars. And so he did a thing where he instituted a two-day weekend and doubled wages. So no one could get great people like he could. All the best people worked for Ford because you made twice as much as anyone else and you had two days off. And through that process, they became people who could buy cars. And then people would see them driving, you know, off for the weekend. Amazing. But when he used that word, when he called people cogs, when he was trying to describe it, one, it's. Looking back, it's a very simplistic view of the man. I want to read more about him now because I just learned about this weekend. Then the second part is we took that forward into computers. And so we have man as machine. It was from the industrialization. Then we turned that into man as computer. Now we're doing man as cyborg or human as cyborg. So you have all these people. A lot of them are guys who are like looking to like add computers to the brain as a way to not be overtaken by advanced general intelligence. And so it's just one of those things. It's like our bodies, we come with so much potential unrealized. So there was a study that I just found the other day. It was actually done in 22. It was done in the summer of last year. Basically it was about generative AI images and the ability Of a human to detect a deep fake. The first level of the studies were like people look at deep fakes and you've seen like that deep fake of Tom Cruise and other people, things where people couldn't tell what was real, what wasn't a deep fake. And when asked who they trust, in many cases, they trusted the deep fake more, the generated face, thinking as they probably trusted the generated face because they're around averages. However, when you asked a person, which one they trusted. They said, oh, this person. And half the time, it wasn't a real person. But if you looked at their EEG brain waves, 100% of the time, they knew what wasn't human. 100% of the time. So our bodies are extraordinary. The human brain, now it didn't make it to the conscious level, but the subconscious, the, the human brain was like, that's not real. That was real. That's not real. That was real. That's not real. And knew it. So we haven't mastered this. And what's fascinating is that technology is the thing that's allowing us to really witness ourselves, to really understand what the natural software and hardware is. And that I'm still bound by metaphor. I'm still using the old metaphor to describe ourselves, but we don't know. We haven't really even begun to tap human potential. There's another thing that I've been, really obsessed with, which is human synchrony and its biosynchrony. When people are vibing, their pupils contract and dilate together in rhythm, their voices harmonize, all sorts of things, which you can't see if you're just watching a meeting. You might listen to the words and be like, oh, they had a great outcome. But computer vision, computer hearing, all of these things can tell when humans are in sync and when they're not. So we naturally sync. And one of the holy grails is sort of group flow. This thing that you see with soccer matches, yeah, yeah high just, performance did, teams, right? They're a in a flow people, state, right? They turn yeah. into something else. Not everyone who is in synchrony is in group flow. Everyone who is in group flow is in synchrony, and synchrony is observable. It's one of those things that's sort of like, well, what if, what if you could take, like when you guys are ideating a new product, you could actually say, okay, Let's go into synchrony. And as a team, you do it because you know the steps to it, or at least make it more likely. What I think a lot about when I think about human potential and technology is like, how do we take technology to amplify our natural abilities into a way that allows us to expand our individual capacity, to begin to access our collective intelligence, and then use that to have collective super performance. That's what we need for the age of AI. And it's very biophilic, but it integrates technology. So it's not a cyborg. It's not this cyborg BS. It's augmenting what it is human. That's a big thing to unlearn is to unlearn metaphors that aren't working for us anymore.
1: Such a great point. And I think the examples you're sharing are just fascinating. First of all, the weekend. Love that idea because we're so in a, moment right now where people are arguing like should I be at the office should I not be in the office should I work four days a week or three days a week there's this sort of narrative but it's it's always great like history so many good lessons and thanks for sharing that story but this other point that you're sort of alluding to around human and machine if you will while you were talking there all my brain could keep thinking about is imagine a product that could be monitoring our conversation and sort of giving us a feedback to say, synchronity score 5, 15, 75, you're in, how that would encourage in some respect, like as a feedback mechanism for a group to sort of go, all right, we've been in this meeting for 30 minutes and we can't get above the low end of the score rating on synchronicity. Should we stop this meeting? Should we refresh it? Should we find a way to reset and try and imagine that impact on those types of feedback mechanisms to improve performance? I have
0: that team. I have a team that's working on that. Okay, They're great. Still in stealth, but they can show just off of a Zoom meeting. So you can have like six people on a Zoom and they can say, you can see like the golf swing thing. Oh, they were in sync they desync, they sync, they desync. And you could then look at like, well, what are they talking about? Or what happened? Did somebody take out their phone and start doing email while someone else was talking? Like, what were the things that happened that created the desync? And what were the things that happened that were created the sync? Or I was just talking to another founder earlier today. One of the things that many people don't know is that it already is hard to get a therapist. In the U.S., (laughs)
1: Yeah, I have a friend working on something similar.
0: Yeah, these people were super booked. But one of the things that people don't know is often on the other side of therapy, the first meeting, it's like something more than half of people never book the second session. So it's already like this tiny, tiny, tiny channel to get in there and they never book the second session. Why not? A big part of it is chemistry, what's called chemistry or fit between the therapist and the person. So if you were able to actually prefit people so that someone is at their most vulnerable and the most scared often, or they finally are seeking help for something, that they actually land in front of someone that they can relate to, who is also skilled at helping them. Because the other thing that happens is that when someone doesn't come to that second session, then they become a therapy rejecter.
1: Right, and they write off the intervention altogether.
0: Yeah. And then they never get in. And so everyone's focused on the first part of the sort of like channel, but there's this whole thing that really has a big impact on efficacy, but it's sort of like that whole thing of matching that affects that happens at work and a bunch of other things. So what's one of those things is we get better at understanding where there's fit and not fit based on race or gender or religious beliefs, but actually like a Psychographic neuro fit, then it becomes important. And this is another important thing to unlearn is to sort of right now just think of all the misbehaving you've seen with people who are conflict avoidant. When I look at a CEO, I am as worried about the conflict avoidant CEO as I am about the blowhard. They're the same person, they're equally destructive on an yeah. organization. Usually the conflict avoidance CEO is harder to pick up on because everybody likes them, but it causes rot over time. And and everybody starts to misbehave in their own way with those types of people in place. So they're less obviously dangerous, but they're equally dangerous. But part of it is that when our society, and this is an unlearning thing, we don't teach people how to have a healthy conflict. And so people are afraid of it. They avoid it. They don't learn how to do it. Conflict seeking and conflict avoiding are not the same thing. You can be someone who doesn't avoid conflict, who also doesn't seek it. That's a subtle sort of thing. So one of the things I think we'll need to unlearn is how we feel about conflict. But when these technologies start to come online, like I just watched this whole conference called Plurality. It's amazing. It's There are a bunch of people working on democracy technology and a bunch of other things, but they're looking at how do you get humans to be able to discuss? Really, it's like the whole, from an AI standpoint, it's collective intelligence empowered by machine learning. Fascinating stuff. Tiny group at this point, but it's like world-changing technology. So making friction an official role. Right now, you just sort of like have... A few people who are willing to do it, but you don't make it a role that everyone gets to do. So I think a really great thing would be to have a spin the bottle type dial in a meeting. When everyone sits down, you spin it, and whoever it points at, their role is the role of friction, their role is the role of challenger. And then sometimes it's the CEO, and then sometimes it's the intern. But everybody does it and they know that they're equally likely to be able to do it in any meeting. And then you take all of the fear and attribution out of what that role is and people just do it and they learn that it's okay. That's another big thing we have to unlearn.
1: These are all like amazing topics, even in their own right. This idea of friction is really fascinating to me too, as well, because I'm someone who probably gets attributed in teams as you are causing friction you ask disconfirming questions and i feel like sometimes i do that because no one else i feel is doing it to like pressure test our thinking but the notion of having that as a role that happens in teams that is like a shared responsibility or even is discussed as this needs to happen like we need to pressure test our thinking if anyone can play that role I find in high-performing teams, like that just happens naturally. But yet, when we sort of give it a, call it out as something that needs to be focused on, especially in a world of technology where it changes so fast and what's possible is flipped on its head literally overnight, becomes even more and more important. So the thing I need to ask you then is, where do you find these places, these communities? Because you seen an hour, someone who's massively active In them, you've built your own transformation of tech lab. You actively sort of find these things. So, for folks who are listening to this show now and are thinking, right, well, how do I start unearthing more of these places that I can learn more about myself? I can learn more about these emerging fields. Where would you encourage them to start?
0: Number one, follow me on LinkedIn because I'm kind of a truffle pig for this kind of stuff. I'll see the headline and then I'll go down the rabbit hole. So follow me on LinkedIn to tie my narrative together. I moved to New York after college, and then I went to business school. And then while I was in business school, I sort of started out looking at banking and consulting like everybody did in my gut. I just knew it was the wrong thing for me personally. So over one winter break, I broke up with my boyfriend who maybe I was going to marry, and then it was like definitely not doing that. I knew that I wasn't going to become a banker or a consulting firm consultant, though many of my friends did. And I have a lot of respect for those firms, but it was just not my path. And I was like, okay, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. So I did What colors Your Parachute? And I did it like my head was on fire and I was looking for water. I did it with so much seriousness. And with that, I identified that I always had an interest in science and technology. And that really stemmed from Star Trek. And from like seeing a future where humanity was on the same page and being a young black girl in Texas in the 70s and 80s, fish out of water, it really resonated with me for humanity to stop looking at the outside and to start looking at the inside. And discovery and exploration was always a part of my DNA. So I was always into science and technology. And I went into games because I was like, it's the next evolution in human storytelling. When I was in college, my minor had been art history. And it was because it's like humans, the stories, and this goes back to language and metaphor. And of course, what Yuval Harari says about the human OS, and it's our language that makes a stadium full of humans, Manchester United fans versus a stadium full of chimpanzees. It's sort of like that story is how we understand who we are, who we were, and who we want to be. And it's that sort of, process that I kind of have done. Also, while I was in college, I had an idea for a novel called The Sisterhood, which I then took 16 years to write. And it basically was about nine Black women who started a technology company for the purpose of mental liberation for women and girls all over the world, because that was who I was and what I was starting with. But it was always this idea that you could free your mind then you could imagine things that didn't exist yet. And then you could create them. So at the beginning, when we were talking, you were like, oh, you've done a bunch of things. And it is true. You know, it's like, I do realize that it looks like that. But for me, I'm doing the same thing, but I might do it in games, or I might do it in tech, or I'm doing it in my personal growth and development work. I'm always pushing on What's possible for me mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally? And then I'm always thinking now about like how to use technology for it. And where I really got that commitment for tech was when I was in China working on World of Warcraft, it was part of my job to look at the weekly player data. And on the back end of that, I saw relationships and friendships and the importance of friendship and retention. There were different things that we made, like a few, gave someone the ability to allow them to show their friends the game, the retention of both of those people from them having a shared experience, that kind of thing. could see all the pieces around it. And so it was really all about human connection. The other day I was watching a football game, not watching it, it was on in the kitchen. And I was just thinking about games in general. And like one of the things that games allow us to do, there's a company I've really love that they're called light forge they're basically doing collective storytelling but it's in the form of a game so it's a lot like dungeons and dragons but they're doing it online with technology and they're using generative ai to be able to allow quote-unquote dungeon masters to be able to create adventures explorable adventures on the fly as they're storytelling The team is Riot Games and Blizzard and Epic Games. And so it's like a world-class team. And they just love D&D. But as I was talking to the CEO, who's this amazing guy named Matt Shambari, I was like, what you're doing is so important because if you are successful and in that success, you find a way to empower a generation of young people to learn small group oral storytelling, All of the data and science around the impact that that has on intelligence, on cognitive abilities, on emotional abilities, like there's a whole body of work on human emotion, language ties into emotion. And so cultures that don't have words for emotions, they don't actually have those emotions. And you can say, oh, well, it's these five words together. And then they can be like, oh, okay, I get it but language is actually tied to our emotional center and our emotional center is actually tied to our cognitive abilities. So in studies on people who have had brain damage where parts of their brain that support emotional faculty are taken out, they might keep their IQ, but they can't make decisions. So our emotional ability and our cognition are deeply intertwined and language plays a deep role in our ability to be emotionally fluent. And so if you have a game where by playing the game, people talk a lot and they talk a lot to other people and they're telling a story, which in therapy, there's this whole concept called narrative flexibility. And people who are successful in narrative flexibility about themselves, which means they can change the story about themselves, are the people who are successful in therapy. When you ask the question about, when we first started talking, when we talked about unlearning, One of the biggest things in life is like, how do you unlearn who you were so you could become who you might be? Narrative flexibility is a part of it. And when I talk to these guys, I'm like, yes, you're a game and you need to make a really amazing game because it has to stand on its own. But you're also a narrative flexibility engine and you're an emotional fluency engine and you are a cognitive adaptability engine. And with those three things together, you're a human intelligence engine.
1: Yeah, look. I love listening to all these stories. The sad part is we also have to
2: end our show at some point.
0: <laughs> keep but, no,
2: but this
0: is the kind of thing that I think about. Well, I do have one thing. This is what I would end on. And it also ties back to unlearning too. So, you know, as I shared with you when we first started talking, my loved one, my elder, has transformed in four weeks. And it's heartbreaking. It's one of those things that really drives home. In many Western civilizations, people don't spend a lot of time with elders. Elders are somewhere else. And the joy of being with an elder and the gift of being with an elder is it really makes you think about how to live as you see sort of this natural progression. For me, it's one of those things that's sort of like, I'm in a very reflective time period where I'm actively thinking, okay, what do I need to unlearn? so that the next, let's say, at least two decades that I have, how do I want to live in these two decades? And what do I need to unlearn in order to create what I'd like to create in this next period of time, whatever it is? And so I'm deeply in that question right now, as I'm also with her in the process of her transition.
1: These are great questions for us all to be asking ourselves. I love, as you say, the stories of how you started off where you were in a party figuring out like what's the person I want to become and almost defining a vision of that and put creating experiences so you could go and become that person. Right now the generative AI technology taking over, we're becoming cyborgs narrative is it's not the narrative that I think most people should listen to or believe in. It should be what's the kind of person I want to become in this technology age. And how can tech maybe even help me get there? A really interesting question for everyone to explore. It's still been about human and maximum potential. I love that you're constantly exploring that. I would highly recommend everybody follow Nicole on LinkedIn. I'm sure your book is going to be phenomenal in terms of helping people navigate who they want to become and be and the best version of them in this fascinating world of technology that we're living in thanks for being on the show and sharing everything from how the weekend was invented to some of the fantastic topics around wellness that you have and well-being and human potential that you have shared. So thank you very much, Nicole. And yeah, I look forward to getting you back on the show again.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal. To start a hundred compelling companies over the next five years and who knows how many beyond that so if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done how products are created companies built and funded even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed this could be the business for you we're looking for talent capital and influence if you wish to contribute any or all of these just get in touch you can follow us on nobodystudios.com on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honoured if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.